Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt and Reese Williamson. So, Seb is still away, but we're delighted to have Reese with us here today. Uh, Reese is actually somebody who both Seb and James and I have all podcasted with in the past, and in fact he produced Seb and James's audio sitcom A Brief History of Time Travel. So, uh, Reese, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what we'll be discussing on today's show? Oh, do I? Um, so, Joey, I met you a long time ago at university. We did some this radio stuff together. Um, that was a good time. And then we left uni and I, I thought, is this the end of this beautiful professional <laughs> relationship? And we sort of said no. So we did podcasts, a few, and they were all great and everyone in the world listened to them. Yeah, but massively we, popular. Yeah, you know, you know, the phrase is kill your darling. So we just thought, these are, you know, this is a big success, but we're going to end, end this as well. <laughs> you had to, had to stop uh, them to give the other podcast a chance. We did. We exactly. absolutely did. Uh, no, if anyone who exists that's listening to this ever listened to Raging Bullshit, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We, we put a lot of time and, and energy into that show. Um, although, and this one is a lot easier though to record. So we did that. And then through that, I met, uh, met James and I met Seb. Uh, and then, as you said, I did I helped them out with their uh, fantastic um, radio sitcom, A Brief History of Time Travel. That was really which, which had even fun. more listeners, as I recall. Even more. That was. I think that got everyone on this planet, and then the Moon people as well listened to that. So big audience <laughs> for that. Uh, and then me and the th- the three of us, we did a comics podcast for a little bit called um, Alternate Cover. That was that was terrific fun. Uh, and then I went off to Canada. So that ended. And then I come back and you guys have your own thing going on. Um, so I also quickly wanted to say that um, now I work in a lovely independent cinema in Barnes. That's going to be my first plug for this summer. It's called Olympic Studios. It really is terrific. Anyone that likes movies that is in London, you should go there. And then by night I do some stand-up comedy as well. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of me. And um, what, are we, what are we discussing today, Reese? Right, we are going to be discussing the original Teenage Mutant Ninja... No, you guys did that before. We're doing <laughs> we Chronicle. We're doing Josh Trank's um, 2012 film, Chronicle, written by Max Landis, starring some peeps, Michael B. Jordan and Dane DeHaan, and a, a third guy who's done less since, so I don't know his name. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to get to that. Okay, so yeah, we are going to be discussing Josh Trank's 2012 film, Chronicle, and as usual, also discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news. Um, but before that, this week we're going to mix things up a little bit because given that Chronicle isn't based on a pre-existing comic book, um, this week James is going to ask me something about movies that's a comic book fan. He just doesn't understand. So James, what is it that you just don't understand? Okay, so in, in comics, right, sometimes people tell a story and it's critically acclaimed and everyone loves it. And so afterwards they leave it how it is and sometimes sort of go, oh, that was a good story, wasn't it? Let's refer to it. So what I want to know is why in movies is there a tendency to go, oh, that was a really good story. Let's do it again and see if we can make it even better. Like remakes, why do they exist? Specifically, why are they remaking the craft? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Money. Usually money. you're, You're trading on nostalgia for something that maybe a previous generation liked or um, something that still has a lot of cultural IP like Ghostbusters that you can make and it's the same reason why people adapt television shows or are more likely to adapt something that is based on something else than create something original because you've got a pre-existing 
uh, love for it. And you can bring back characters and you can bring back ideas and people already have that affection. So you're guaranteed a base level box office. And I would imagine why that probably doesn't happen in comics is because you tend to have characters who there are just loads and loads of stories being told about them over the years. But again, I'm 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 right in thinking, right? There are lots of there are lots of comic book characters who have had their origin stories told over and over again. Or, yeah, origin stories are probably the exception. Uh, it, it's more like things like the Dark Phoenix saga, uh, like massive X-Men story. No one goes, oh, let's do that again. Like they do things inspired by it, but you know, yeah. no one's ever re- remaking the pages precisely or anything. I mean, you take like a, a big, um, a really, really big old crossover. One called James. Do you know about this one called Secret Wars? So, like that exists. I mean, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that again. That's a, that's a crazy idea. In fairness, uh, just the name, not the premise. <laughs> and again, you, there is there is stuff like the Dark Phoenix saga, but they brought Jean Grey back, and they, you know, so they've still got the characters, and even the one character they killed off, they're bringing back and doing new stuff. And I'm pretty sure that a load of other characters have had the Phoenix Force since then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think that's you know, it's more I think specifically... it's the same. It's the same tendency. It's the tendency to trade on something that someone that people love, and just try and maybe either generate new stories out of that, or retell it in a slightly different way. It's okay. It's okay to be creatively bankrupt as long as you're not financially bankrupt. <laughs> also, to be to be fair, I mean, when a when a comic is a huge hit. You know, you sell a hundred thousand copies to the to the direct market. If a movie if a movie sells a hundred thousand <laughs> tickets, you know, the, a big, huge, but must Hollywood movie, that's a bomb. So I think uh, <laughs> comics just, you know, Hollywood is really ch- chasing as many people as possible, and I think comic books gave up on that quite a long time ago. So that they, uh, you know, they can they can take even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. I think they can and do take more risks with their IP than than mm. the big Hollywood studios do. Yeah, um, good point. We should start remaking comics. We should, we should. I'll, I'll, that just needs like um, some see-through paper, right? And uh, <laughs> just draw over the one and try and release that. That would be a really interesting experiment, though, wouldn't it? To be taking yeah, like modern-day okay, artists and point. to re redraw, maybe use the same the same script. Yeah, yeah I've wondered why. I've genuinely them. wondered why no one's ever tried that. Like taking uh, like Chris Claremont's original Dark Phoenix Saga script and getting someone else to draw it like, I'll do just it just as an exercise <laughs> how much <laughs> commissioned yeah Jerry Cunningham I do well, some they, really yeah. good like bubble face cartoons <laughs> Would, I mean they that do work? that they sort of do that a little bit James will know like you know you there's the odd weird compilation that comes out of Marvel and DC that will have like some Stanley some never published Stanley story that you know John Romita Senior comes in and touches up or they do you know those those IW artist edition things yeah 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 it's kind of a bit like that where you do take a story that exists and put a modern sheen on it and then they do you know they recolor comics sometimes so there's a bit of that but mm-hmm. but yeah just in terms of like a really kind of a pure like a high profile real remake of uh, an actual old story yeah I can't uh, I don't yeah not out there. Great question, James. I'm sure we'll be back to the usual me asking you about comic book things next week because there is still a lot that I'm confused about. Um, <laughs> You'll get that. Uh, let's move on now to this week's comic book movie news segment. And um, the first thing is something that I mentioned on last week's mini-sode, but it's something that I know nothing about and need explaining to me. So um, I mentioned that The Wicked and the Divine has been optioned as part of the Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue DeConnick deal that they've got going with <laughs> Universal TV. But I know nothing about this comic 
James, you explain to Reese and I um, what The Wicked and the Divine is and whether it would make a good TV show. Okay, uh, the premise is sort of every couple of generations, 12 gods are reincarnated as members of the public. Like they incarnate, sorry, into 12 members of the public, sort of selected at random. Uh, They become sort of the dominant artists of the time. Uh, Like in, in the current version they're all pop stars but back in the sort of 1920s they were all like literary heroes and stuff and so what are their pop star guys is like taylor swift and beyonce and people like that uh it's things like prince and florence and the machine uh okay kanye west that sort of thing but uh, the the spin on the concept is you get all this talent and fame and followers but you die after two years Ah, so they're all they're all incarnated at age twenty five. Then I would assume. Uh, well, quite no. It's I think they're all teenagers, maybe. And so, what actually happens, like issue to issue, in it? Obviously, not specifics. But... Issue to issue, it follows a sort of Uber fan called Laura, who's kind of growing up in suburban London, and she's a sort of uh, nerd for you know the the pop star pantheon. The first arc is a murder mystery where someone is killed, and it's kind of. Uh, do they do do they do fighties and kisses? That's my question. Because what you've described so far it just sounds a little a little slow. But I imagine with the Kieran Gillen McKelvey comic, there's fighties, there's kisses, there's explosions and stuff. That is yeah, in there's there. Lots of exploding, definitely. Excellent, great. Yeah. I'm sold. Commissioned. Actually, it is commissioned. So yeah. And Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey are both British comic people, right? Yeah, it's written by Kieran Gillen and drawn by Jamie McKelvey, and you know, I I can sort of say. Lots of good things about them, but they're also my friends personally, so it's hard to, you know, do so impartially. I would say it's a very good comic and people should read it. So, impartially, do you think it is something that would make an easy transition from comic to TV? I would say it would make an easier transition than Sex Criminals would. Hmm. Right, which is obviously the first one that that Fraction and Deconic were working on. Yeah, I mean, my big question with Wicked and Divine is, are they going to keep it set in Britain? Because it's like it's got such a British flavour from issue to issue, mm. and like there's no reason it should be set in Britain. So you know, from, you could, from, you from could the kind transplant of pop star analogues that you were talking about. It sounded like it's almost counterintuitive that it's in Britain. Like well, if you're yeah, that's, with people that's like the sort of thing. Like it, you know, London is a sort of international centre, so it's not hard to imagine Kanye West hanging out in the nightclub in London. At the same time, it would make so much more sense if it was in Los Angeles. Yeah, you asked, will they keep it set in London? I'll just answer that and say that no, of course they won't. They definitely <laughs> won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's another. It's just, it, you know, I remember when you guys were talking about we're talking about sex criminals. Um, that, that being the first of the fraction deconic, you know, properties chosen by what was what's that production company called? Milkfed Production. Milkfed right? Criminal Milk Masterminds. Yeah. Good, good name. But uh, just I don't know. These both seem like big challenge. You know, I, I wonder whether they were would have been smarter picking. I don't know, just a slightly uh, an easier adaptation because these are. I just think these are both big, big challenges, big tasks, and uh, whether they can pull one of them or both of them off, I, I, uh, I, I kind of doubt that they can. I know that sounds really pessimistic. Yeah, but, I mean, it's going to be um, tough to yeah. to hammer these into a police procedural framework. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on now to our next piece of news. James Wan has been confirmed as the director of Aquaman, which of course is starring uh, Jason Momoa. Guys, are you excited about an Aquaman movie and are you more or less excited now that the um, Fast and Furious 7 director is in is in charge of it? 
I think I speak for us all when I say the prospect of an Aquaman film makes us all absolutely ecstatic. <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm as excited. Well, here's my answer. I'm as excited for Aquaman as I am any of the other DC movies, which is like a little <laughs> bit, but not a lot, because I'm more of a yeah. I mean, guy. that's yeah. That's that's fair. Like. It might be good. It doesn't feel like something I was clamouring to see, but then I'm not a big DC guy, so, you know. <laughs> James Wan, basically, um, he broke through by directing Saw. Right. And then kind of had an ignominious five or six years with nothing really that interesting. But then directed Insidious, and right. then The Conjuring, and then Insidious uh, Chapter 2, and wow. he got the gig for Fast and Furious 7. So he's a horror guy, basically, who then proved his worth with a really big budget with Fast and Furious 7. Well, that could be fun then. So, you know, if there were some, I mean, there won't be, you won't be able to call Aquaman a horror film, I'm sure. But, you know, you could see some sort of, some sort of squirty, gnarly elements. You know, maybe there's a squid that's all scary, a scary squid, you know, stuff like that. That could be fun. I'm ser- I'm ser- I mean, it's the approach to... that Marvel has taken to Doctor Strange. Yeah, exactly. They're Scott Derrickson, who is just yeah, a flat out horror director. I hope we see a scene where Aquaman cuts his own hand off. Oh, we see a, a scene where Jason Momoa is just all scared, and he's like, "Oh, a ghost, a sea ghost." That's all scared. That could be fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you're right. We're probably going to know how excited we are about this once we see Batman versus Superman, mm. and we get our glimpses at those other characters. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know he was the Saw guy, and I really liked the original Saw. So, yes, you know. Even if what he did afterwards wasn't necessarily that good, this makes me more, more interested than I would have been with I like him. I think any other director. I haven't seen The Conjuring, but I think the first Insidious is a you know is a well made, interesting film. Genuinely pretty scary, and yeah, he is he faced possibly the most challenging circumstances he could for Fast and Furious Seven, and has handled them very well and pulled that movie together under very difficult circumstances. And I would imagine any director who wants to direct in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC one needs to have that kind of, (laughs) you know, can face kind of unexpected twists and turns and kind of be dealing with circumstances outside of your own control. Mm -hmm. I am just very curious Um, to see, though, how they're going to do, you know... Aquaman, his whole thing is that he kind of he kind of sh- needs to be and should be in the water, you know, actually submerged for for good chunks of, of an Aquaman <laughs> film. And how are they going to? I'm just curious how they're going to do, you know, big, you know, big spectacle action scenes that are that take place entirely underwater. I mean, the last one that did that was like Thunderball, and that was a while ago. Mm. So I just I'm really curious as to how how that's going to look. But uh, maybe that's maybe that's going to be kind of a hook as well for the film a, 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 a you know something that's going to mark Aquaman out from from the other superheroes I mean, at the time i'd be very it. interested if that was the case kind of like doing almost what marvel did with thor and kind of opening yeah. up the world to a different area and that's what james cameron's going to be doing with his avatar sequel he's going to be taking at least one of his avatar sequels going under the water in pandora so i would assume kind of the effects are there and the capability to do it is there um, but it's going to be pretty cutting edge if they, mm. if that's the approach they take. But I'd be I'd be happy if that was what they choose to do. Jason Momoa is just basically getting me wet for two years. Like you can just tell he's he's, he's <laughs> going to be like oh, God, I'm just going to have to be like covered in water for the next five years of my career. He'll just he'll just be all wrinkly around the fingers. Yes, yeah, he's so pruning. He'll be like a prune. Um, okay, I think that is it for this week's comic book movie news section. Let's move on now to our spoiler filled discussion of Chronicle. Uh, But before we dive in, let's listen to a clip from the movie. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) Andrew! It's 
Okay, so that was a clip from Chronicle. Um, let's dive in straight away and just start discussing it. Um, so obviously this was a 2012 film from uh, directed by Josh Trank, who is going to go on and direct that Fantastic Four film that's coming out later this year. Um, written by Max Landis, who is the son of um, John Landis. And starring Dane DeHaan, who went on to star as the Green Goblin in uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Michael B. Jordan, who is playing the Human Torch in that Josh Trank Fantastic Four film, and that other guy. Um, you you guys had never, neither of you had seen this movie before. So without going into too much detail, are you were you fans of Chronicle, watching it for the first time this week? I'm going to let Reese answer this one first. Okay. I, um, oof. It made me really excited. No, it made me quite excited for... Max Landis's sort of American Ultra film that comes out this summer, which looks like another superhero-y movie that he's written. And mm. it makes me excited for sure um, for Josh Trank's Fantastic Four movie, which comes out this summer, um, because those are two fa- superhero films that they're involved with that are not attached to the found footage format. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to what they're going to do with that, because I basically found it probably as good as a found footage villain origin story superhero story was going to be but i also found that very restrictive and it left me wanting more and i didn't i wasn't that satisfied with it by the end of it that's kind of how i felt james yeah that's basically where i like the the thing i took away from this film was michael b jordan is great and i'm really looking forward to seeing him in fantastic four now the rest of it i was just sort of uh it's yeah, it didn't excite me, and it didn't show me anything new, and it was mostly about the gimmick, which is something that I've never really seen in a film and enjoyed. I, I get that the movie wouldn't have gotten made. I mean, I don't believe the film would have gotten made if it was a you know a more linearly told, you know, told in the in the classic in the classic cinematic fashion, because because you need that found footage hook, I think, to make a story that is. Quite, actually quite generic you, you, you just need that hook for, for the for the marketing and for you know for the people to drive the people to the cinema um but i just i just it didn't add anything i think to a traditional story one that i've seen in films before and christ i'm sure just like james <laughs> i've read in a whole lot of comics before hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah okay so that's that's interesting because i remember i saw this film first of all back when it came out at um, a press screening, kind of knowing nothing about it, not even really that it was a superhero movie, just like, do you want to go see this film for Chronicle for review? Yep, sure. Went and saw it, and I I really liked it, and I still really like it, so I think we're going to we can have quite an interesting discussion here. <laughs> ding, 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 um, round one. <laughs> um, and we'll get to the we'll get to the fan footage thing in a minute, because I think fan footage is a, is a is a thing that gets 
uh, beaten up on and, as James described it, a gimmick um, far too often because it often is a gimmick, but I'm, I'm not sure it always is. And I actually think that Chron- Chronicle, I think, is probably one of the films since the Blair Witch Project to use fan footage the best. But let's talk about what you were saying about this kind of this kind of story from comic books because I agree with you. It does. It is. I think a a fairly basic story in terms of three kids get powers, one of them gets them faster and kind of is corrupted by them faster. And it's kind of a supervillain origin story. But for me, I don't think I've seen too many supervillain origin stories in film. And certainly when we do on this superhero podcast that we're doing, we're normally talking about heroes. And if supervillains do get their origin, it's kind of it's kind of you know in service of the heroes. But this is really the villain put front front and center, understanding the villain, understanding his arc and how he gets to that point. So, what what are your comic book comparisons that make this feel a little bit tired? Well, one just quickly, one thing I think is very comic booky is virtually every villain origin story in the comics comes back at some point to, yeah. oh, they had an abusive parent. Hmm. Like that, that as a trope. I mean, I don't like using the word trope, but you would struggle to find a supervillain who has a, a loving, stable family background. Yeah. And similarly, well, the, yeah. the stuff about, you know, getting powered up and then sort of as the power grows, the, that, that, there's that conflict between other, maybe others who do the good, who do positive things with those powers, and there's that the guy who does the the bad things with the powers. Like that's just kind of that's every uh, supervillain origin story for me. That's you know you you just pick up any random issue of of Spider-Man of Superman, you know, with a just sort of a one-off or a, a single arc villain in there, you know. And if you get his origin story, there's a good chance that it it follows exactly those beats. So I guess. To so, your point, Joe, you know, has there is there a, a specific example I can point to where where your primary, you know, your primary character in the story is the villain and it's his origin story? Maybe not. Uh, maybe James can't be like that, but maybe I can't think of one like that. But I just think that this the the basic arc is in every if there's a if there's a villain in a comic, it he follows this path. So it's maybe it's maybe the idea then that because in comics and in superhero comics because the hero is established and ongoing, when you introduce new new villains, they do get so much more emphasis mm-hmm. placed on them when they're new because that's the character you don't know. Yes, that's yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so James, are there any comics that you can think of that are pretty much told as the the villain? being the protagonist uh, like yeah. this. Off the, off the top of my head, it's hard to come up with anything. Um, Didn't Mark Millar have one? Uh, Nemesis? Wanted. No, Nemesis, yeah, th- I think that's th- the one No, you're thinking of Wanted. Nemesis was about sort of the evil Batman, but it, uh, the hero was a uh, cop. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, Wanted is the film where the kid gets uh, sort of trained as an assassin with superpowers. Yeah. And at the end of the comic, it goes like, oh, were you rooting for me, you idiot? You're like, I'm the villain. Right. You know, it's not unheard of, but it's hard to come up with any big examples. There are definitely a few Bullseye miniseries which explore his origin and, you know, have sort of, he was beaten as a child or whatever. And there's a, in fact, Kieran Gillen did a Sabretooth one shot, which is about how when young Sabretooth's mutation came out, he was kept in the basement and fed rabbits and stuff. Maybe Wanted is the kind of like good parallel here then, because Andrew, Dane DeHaan's Andrew is definitely set up as 
as as the protagonist but kind of the hero in that like he's kind of like the he's he's almost like i would say like set up kind of like a spider-man-y kind of kid yeah except um, with with that that extra kind of tragic brutality in his backstory well this is sort of the thing that surprised me was that i was watching it going you know not knowing anything about the film i was watching it going like oh here he is sort of the nerdy kid oh hang on he's he's the villain like i didn't see that coming like and in retrospect yeah it makes sense because he had this unstable background and he you know couldn't handle the power he got Mm. and but you know you're expecting i was expecting a spider-man archetype of bullied kid becomes a hero and what i got was the the villain story and on that level, I was surprised by the film. I mean, you could you could give the movie a lot of credit for the Matt character uh, that maybe it doesn't deserve in saying that kind of your hero at the end that they've established is the most bland, boring guy character that you can possibly imagine. But because he just he's morally, ethically in a pretty solid place, he turns out to be the guy that's doing good at the end. But the guy who's interesting, the guy whose head you want to be inside is the villain. He's the he's the guy with the interesting stuff going on. Except I don't think it's, there's it's, I don't think there's that much interesting stuff going on in his head. I I think you know the first half I definitely enjoyed the first half of the film more than the second half because of because of what you're talking about. You know this. I think by the by the middle you do know which direction it's going to go in. But then for me the second half was was it didn't do anything more with with some of these ideas. It didn't. I don't think it really got into his head or, or even attempted to more so than it had done in the first half. And as you say, that, that, you know, the Michael Jordan character, who's great, you know, he, he gets knocked off halfway through. And then the, the other character you're left with is Paul McBlandy face, who really is, is dumb. I mean, he can, he can quote the old book, but he is, that is a, that is a poorly drawn, uh, thinly drawn character. But for me, Dana Hans character is also kind of thinly drawn as well. Um, Maybe it comes down to the performance then, because, I mean, this was Dane DeHaan's breakthrough film. He, he He's really good in this, right? He In the same way that Michael B. Jordan is, you can kind of... You can kind of see, like, just watching this movie, why other people, other directors, casting directors, mm. would look up and take notice to these two guys. Yeah, but, in like, in the sense that when he's on screen, you get more out of it than when he's behind the camera, definitely, because, you know, when he's doing the filming you don't get any window in, you don't really get any insight into him aside from him being one of those found footage people who won't put down a camera under Hmm. any circumstance. Hmm. I I wanted to... Discussion we'll have later. Well, I wanted to just, uh, we will talk about later, but I just wanted to bring in a found footage point now because I think that part of the problem as the film goes along is that, you know, it's like any given scene, they are, they're only at about like, they're only at about 60, 70% storytelling capacity because i feel like they're always having to justify the camera they're always having to to cut away not when you know you could you could be you could be making interesting points about these characters in in, you know your traditional cinematic ways you could be you know using cuts to to denote what's going on in these guys heads but because of this goddamn Mm. found footage thing you 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 just lose all of these tools you know and all you have is these performances um, and these and these thinly drawn characters in the script, but you can't use any of the of the classic cinematic tools to to do anything more. Um, yeah, so I think it's a shame. I mean, okay, let's 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 properly talk fan footage because <laughs> I agree with what you're saying there. That yeah, you you are obviously not dealing with the traditional visual narrative of cinema when you're using fan footage. You're 
angles are different and your perspectives are different and your cuts are different and your edits are different. So you get those weird little YouTube kind of cuts in the middle of scenes where there is dialogue that you don't want. But having said that, I don't think this is your traditional found footage film. And I think found footage can be often used as a shortcut to make films cheaper. So you don't kind of have to show everything that's going on. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that here, but actually not as much. And I think fan footage is also sometimes an excuse for less sophisticated directors or filmmakers to get around doing that normal stuff and just, you know, have excuses for just showing you this or the camera just shaking and moving. So you kind of, you're aware that something's happening, but it's not actually. But what Chronicle does by giving Andrew the ability to control the camera without holding it, um, a lot of the time kind of removes that stuff. And I think it makes sense. The camera is justified in the very first scene as, you know, he's kind of introduced this camera to his life to document the abuse that his father is putting him through to try and reduce it. And then it makes sense that teens in 2012 would want to be documenting in a way that they normally do on camera phones, but he's got a proper camera. You know, all this cool shit that they're doing. So the first scene we get when they... Um, actually get their powers, which is one the one that we just played in the clip on the show when they're throwing the baseballs at each other. That seems like a goofy YouTube clip that some teenagers would upload to YouTube today anyway, but with superpowers added to the mix. Well, I was going to say, I completely agree with that. The problem is the bits in between those scenes, like there's stuff where bits where he's genuinely fearing, fearing for his life and literally everyone is shouting at him like, put down the camera, why are you filming this? Stop filming it and help, whatever. Sorry, like, at which bit? Okay, so the car flips over into the lake. He's standing yeah. there filming it while they're trying to save him. Hmm. Uh, the, he goes to the party with the camera and everyone's going like, why are you filming this? I'm literally beating him up for filming it. <laughs> the, they're so committed to this is going to be a found footage film that they have to deal with all this nonsense of why is he filming everything and it just gets in the way of the storytelling. See, again, I, I think that tells you something about Andrew as a character, that he is this nerdy teen and, you know, the kind of the awkward kids who, turned up, who turn up at school wearing, like, ostentatious clothing or, like, maybe a nerdy kid who decides to become a goth and turns up at school and the other kids will beat them up about it or will make fun of them about it, but they're still doing it because that's part of their, their identity and it becomes part of his identity and also the fact that despite being this insular shy kid what is clear about Andrew as the film progresses is that he is driven by ego uh, that like yeah maybe he's shy and maybe he's not cool but he's smarter these kids and when he gets his powers he's stronger than them and in the end of the film, he's taken down by e ego and hubris. And, you know, when he that, that great shot where he brings out all of the camera phones to film himself from all the different angles, <laughs> he kind of, he wants to document how awesome he is. He wants everyone to know, like everyone to see his powers and his capabilities. And I, I, I think that especially post getting the powers, that is why the camera's there all the yeah, time. Yeah, post, like post getting the powers, I'm on board with it. It's just the problem is the first sort of... 20 30 minutes of the film where it's just him filming stuff that he's got no business filming that's when it feels like a gimmick to me it's only after particularly as you say when he gets the ability to control the camera that's when it starts being a bit more believable for me but i think it's doing a lot of stuff in in service of what is again i keep saying gimmick but you know technique it does a lot with it to justify its format 
as opposed to just saying this is a found footage film we're not going to mention it every time it's relevant which is what they do i also think so what you're saying jerry about about the camera being a good uh, you know a, a representation or a reminder of his ego and then that's that scene towards the end with the camera phones that that is terrific um it's just that that mm. those sorts of ideas the the linking of the uh found you know of andrew as the footage taker you know at that being the found footage conceit with the themes of the film it just doesn't happen enough for me you know there are there are multiple scenes and scenes and scenes where i just didn't feel like those ideas were present and so again if you're going to have those scenes where you give it you throwing away all of you know lots of other cinematic tools there weren't enough scenes where that's being replaced with some of the stuff we're talking about. It, it, yes, it's in the odd moment, but it's not enough. Um, and that's why the film, for me, doesn't doesn't quite push through to to have anything really interesting to say about about superheroes or about or about these characters. Yeah, I'm not sure how much depth there is to the kind of the stuff they want to say about superheroes and superpowers. But I thought it was interesting that. I wonder whether the Matt character is almost just kind of a mouth a mouthpiece for Max Landis because Matt is a teenager who is heavily into philosophy and I'm not sure how much the film ever really delves into this stuff but he references at various points uh, Schopenhauer and Plato and Jung but his Schopenhauer quote right at the start of the film so he says something along like so he says human beings have to recognize themselves as beings of pure will so all emotional and physical desires can never be fulfilled and if you kind of i, I don't know if anyone knows anything about philosophy i'm a, I, I know very little about philosophy i've never studied it but schopenhauer's theory basically uh, beyond that whittles down to that there is this idea of metaphysical will that will perpetually and malignant, malignant, uh, malignantly seek sa- satiation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and similarly, um, he mentions as they're all going down into kind of the weird cave where they get the powers from, he goes, oh, have you guys ever heard of uh, Plato's allegory of the cave? Which again, if you, <laughs> if you go and do some reading into that stuff, there are obviously, there are, there are parallels between what the film is doing and that philosophy but it it kind of reminded me of like kind of like uh, the kind of how lost used to drop the names of philosophers in loads of characters <laughs> mm-hmm. and really it didn't mean anything but maybe if you could go off and read some philosophy you could see some vague parallels okay. between these two things but at least it at least said to me that Max Landis had these deeper ideas even if the film doesn't maybe fully pay off on see, all of them. I'll, I'll tell you what I was reminded of and that was uh, the Matrix sequels yeah, well, the Ma- the Matrix is pretty much Plato's cave writ large into a movie. Like they're constantly ref- doing things like, "Oh, look, you turned up in a train station that is a representation of something from Buddhism," hmm. and it's like, "So, do you just want us to rec?" Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Recognize that or do you have a point to make about it? Because yep. inevitably in the in the Matrix sequels, it is, I read this thing and think it's interesting. Here is a representation of it. That's all I've got. This is a Max Landis thing, though. I mean, if you follow him on Twitter or you follow his on YouTube channels and blah, 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 blah. He's all bark and no bite. He's all, look at me, I'm so smart. Look at these ideas I have. And there seems to be actually quite little follow-through on a lot of that stuff. So it's not surprising at all that he wants he wants us to know that he's smart and that he's read books um, and he's put that in his, in his script. Uh, I've read that, books I, as well. I mean, yeah, we've all read books. Have, most, most of them have pictures, but... You know. I read pop-up books, you know, because I like the 3D stuff. What did you think about the um, the way that they actually depict the superpowers? Because obviously, and I don't kind of mean like baseballs floating in front of people's faces and Lego bricks joining together in the air. I kind of mean the way they actually describe how the powers work for them and kind of the way they discuss using them. Because um, that was one of the elements I really liked about the movie. I, there were... Uh, there were times where I could almost kind of see how mm. Andrew was using his powers without, with, with obviously all of it is unseen. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think you, you know, whenever you read, uh, I remember the early days as a kid reading uh, Chris Claremont's purple prose about how um, Jean Grey's telekinesis worked and, you know, coming out of those comics with with not a real good sense of like, okay, if I had this power all of a sudden, how how would it work? How do I how do I make myself fly? How do I move this lamp or whatever? Whereas I actually think yes, in Chronicle you you do get and you kind of you do end the movie thinking like, oh, I kind of I wonder that's I get the thought process then if you are gifted with these powers. So yeah, no, you're right. I I, uh, I engage with that stuff for sure. There's the bit where he's talking about how it's like a muscle and how he's been training mm. it. Mm. Uh, and the thing, moment where he like pulls that. out the teeth and he saw, he says, I kind of like grabbed this one like a lasso, yeah. uh, a lasso and the other one I got around the middle and kind of, and that's kind of why it snapped a little bit. And again, when they're like forcing the fork down on his hand and he's like, oh, it's almost like a reflex. You create a barrier around yourself. And yeah. mm-hmm. um, I could, I fun, could yeah. kind of see like, I could imagine like if I had these powers, how I would be like visualizing using them. I thought it did a really, really smart job of that. I was just going to say that's the sort of thing that most superhero films don't go into. Yes, with yeah, very depth. rarely. Uh, like it's something you see it fairly, fairly often in comics. 
but yeah in terms of film specifically like it's the sort the only thing i can think of that got close to that was heroes because uh, mm. heroes specifically had the kind of documenting how claire was using her invulnerability powers and testing the limits of them and that's something normally in films it's kind of we don't have enough time to go into the the deeper details of that but yeah chronicle definitely did have the time to explore those ideas it's also the sort of it's like the the christopher nolanizing you know of 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 superheroes a bit in our culture which is that like why does this stuff need to be explained why can't superman fly just because he can fly because he's you know not real he's a fictional character we're going to hmm. use <laughs> these powers and and use what he represents to tell, you know, as as it's a metaphor, you know, it's it's it, he's going to represent things within yeah. stories. Why do we have to know how he flies? You know, I th- and I did think. No, that's fine. I mean, I would totally agree with that. In something like Daredevil, I think Daredevil does fine by it. Daredevil is almost like belligerent in not explaining how Matt Murdock's <laughs> powers work, and I never had a problem with that. But I actually think it really it works really well here. These are teenagers who are getting powers, and I think it's really interesting how it handles how these kids get the powers. Because yes, there are three characters and one of them essentially becomes a supervillain. But at no point does any one of these three kids think, I have this power now and I'm going to use it for good. <laughs> um, it's it, it reminded me of that. Um, there was an episode of This American Life a couple of weeks ago talking about what <laughs> would you... I listened to this after you told me. Yeah, so what would you rather have, invisibility or the power to fly, and how no one actually says, I would use these powers to do good. I would be a superhero. And none of these kids do. And so the first things they're doing is they're messing around with each other. They go and play pranks on people in a supermarket. They wish up a girl's skirt. Uh, That's another thing I think we should probably discuss. I think there's some interesting stuff on the, like, (laughs) sexual, repressed sexual angst in this movie a little bit as well. (laughs) Um, But it's a teenage movie movie with hormones um, turned into superpowers, so... Uh, that's probably not surprising, but yeah, they all they all use their powers in very teenage ways, and none of them decide to be superheroes. And that's another thing I liked. I liked that it kind of felt grounded and small and contained to these kind of like the way that an awkward teenager would work or a really confident kid would use his powers. Well, you... I, I, I thought that all of that worked really well. You say no one decides to be a superhero, you know, yeah. ex- except Matt. No, but I don't think he does. Well, I don't think he ever does film. decide to be a superhero. It, like, not in the literal put-on-a-costume sense, but definitely in a kind of, I'm going to cleanse myself of evil and learn to become, a, you know, learn to use these powers as brilliantly as I can. Should we talk about Steve? Because it is uh, it is absolutely criminal that we have talked about <laughs> Matt Garrity um, more than we have talked about Steve. Um, because... Um, if Dane DeHaan steals the show in this movie, Michael B. Jordan comes very close. It's probably just that he only sticks around for an hour, that he doesn't. But I... this guy has charisma just oozing <laughs> out of all of his pores. And it's it's very difficult. And I, I think this is probably a deliberate choice by Josh Trank and, and maybe Max Landis. But I, I think you're supposed to be reading Michael B. Jordan as a kind of Obama figure. And I don't mean just because of the race, but obviously that plays into it. And I think that probably played into the casting. I don't know whether you thought there was anything of that there. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Obama. Yeah, he said Obama. I, I, I kind of thought that, this, <laughs> I thought that this, you know, when he starts to talk about politics, yes. And as you say, there's the racial element. But if that's the case, again, it's, 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 
it's one of the, it's the problem I have with the film. It's, it all just seems quite empty and very very surface yeah, level. Because yeah. if that's true, what they don't do anything with that. If they, you know, is that if they're making those parallels, like why? What are you what are you saying? Are you trying to say something about Obama or, or about this guy or about? No, I power? thought it was like, just almost the... kind of like a shorthand for the character that this is kind of like who you should imagine that this kid would become. You know, that is his potential pre-powers. Yeah, I would have loved um, then and, to have and, seen, you know, because then maybe you could talk about you could talk about power. Then here's a guy who who uh, you've drawn the parallels to uh, the current U.S. sitting president, the most powerful guy on the planet. Here's a guy then that gets power early, more power than than most others. You know, do something with that with that idea, but the movie just doesn't go there. So um, yeah, but again, does it come does it come back to this idea that this guy who has been given superpowers who wants to go into politics? You know, why does he want to go into politics? Is it just because he's charismatic and he's kind of a good guy and maybe, you know, politics seems like a thing for him, but, or does he actually want to make positive, positive change in the world? And from all we see in the film, well, even no, he doesn't or no, he's not able to. Again, though, these, like these characters are teenagers. So it's sort of, we're seeing the very start of their journey. And like, even people who aspire, like we literally saw an, an MP recently, who was elected in the current British elections. And the first thing they did was go, the media went through her social media feeds and found things of her like being lazy or churlish. And it's sort of, even people, like all politicians have this thing in their past and they get to a better place as they age. So I feel like we're supposed to get the, the idea of lost potential out of Steve's death. Yeah, yeah, I would buy that. Um, I mean, because he is, he is the proper hero of the piece, right? Because it's yeah, almost exactly. like Steve is set up as the hero, Andrew is the villain, and Matt is kind of the one who's in the middle who could go one way or the other. And it's almost that he has to fill the vacuum that Steve leaves at the end. Do you guys think it is a problem that Michael B. Jordan's character dies first? That, he, that, that basically the black guy dies first? Because I remember at the time that the movie came out, um, the director, Joseph Kahn, was quite vocal on Twitter that this was yet another big Hollywood movie where they killed a black guy. I'm um, not going to say I didn't roll my eyes. It is it is kind of unfortunate, isn't it? I had more issues with with the female characters, frankly. And, and Yes. You know, if we want to talk about, what's her name, Casey? I mean, it's like even more blandy face than Paul McBlandy face. Um, <laughs> a, character, a character that seems to exist to, to basically, for that one shot where you see her wearing wearing only pants and she's holding her boo so i i don't know if I, I haven't seen the first trailer for chronicle but i would bet that that shot is in one of the trailers um she and, and she i mean a character that exists just to have a, a, a second angle you know just to kind of then be with matt when when yeah. andrew is off being evil at the end that character that's all she exists for and she's sort of fawning over matt early on and and just has no she just has no character and that's that's a real shame you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna write a character into the film who, who you know the, the only female character really with a with a major speaking part oh, yeah, and absolutely. give her absolutely nothing to do um just that seems it's a shame I quite like the actress Ashley Hinshaw from a couple of things that I've seen her in. Um, so I'm, I definitely don't think that she's to blame. But yeah, you're right. She turns up and she is kind of a, a real cheat for the filmmaker in that she arrives with this other camera. Such a fucking Because she's filming stuff for her blog, her video blog, which fine, okay. But I really don't think the film needed it. It was, it was almost a way to keep Matt 
on screen for a little bit longer Mm -hmm. and to have one relationship for Matt that wasn't Andrew. But, I mean, essentially she gets, what, the scene in the nightclub, the scene where Matt comes to her door, which actually the cameras are set up quite well there where she has got her camera set up so she's filming him through the door and you can also see her face in the mirror. It's a nice, it's a, it's a nicely set up shot, but it's, it annoyed me the whole time that they had introduced this second camera that didn't really didn't need to be there because for all the other times when they're taking camera phone stuff and CCTV stuff at the end, I'm like that, that all seems like fair game to me that someone would piece together this big action scene across the city from all these different cameras they can find. But she is, yes, her her use in the film is unfortunate. And it becomes unfortunate even more because you're right, because she's the only real proper female character and she's given nothing to do. And she disappears at the end. She gets like a, even slightly a bit damsel and distressed at the very when she's in the car with Matt, you know, so she exists yeah, yeah, for no so purpose. And then they sort of almost fridge her at the end anyway. It's just, uh, yeah. Do you see the film in... Because this is something that always... This is one of the things that does bug me about fan footage, is that, okay, this fan footage has been found, it's been edited together into this 90 minutes, but who's done it? Like, if you want me to believe that this is found footage, someone has to have put this together into this thing. Which I think some fan footage films do. I seem to remember Cannibal Holocaust, which is one of the first, has a specific reason why that stuff has been edited together into what you have see. You, have you seen Diary of the Dead? Yes. Where at the start, it says, like, whoever assembled this cut, put music over it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay, George. Well, also, you've got, um, you've got you know, I think I think um, uh, Cloverfield does it kind of interestingly where, you know, because you get that little, the, the bookend at the very beginning, yeah, some yeah. little yeah. text, you know, you get the impression that maybe the government's put this together. Uh, the, the Blair Witch one, if I remember but correctly. But also, that's, that, that's quite cool that it's kind of like you get some of the stuff that had been recorded on the camera that yes, they've recorded exactly. over. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah. Cloverfield has kept single camera for the whole thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, um, and they, the, the Blair Witch thing, uh, you know, part of that whole marketing campaign was, oh, we really found this tape in the woods and, and we, we're just mm. showing this tape. So that was the idea was that, you know, the people who were releasing the film in the real world had found some tape in the woods. So there's that. It's become annoying in the years in between, I think, in the same way that kind of, in a way that we just accept now that the whole mockumentary format has just been stolen. (laughs) And it's no, like, if you're watching Parts and Recreation or Modern Family, it's not a mockumentary. No one is making this mockumentary. It's just that these demented people are sitting, looking into (laughs) blank space, talking their feelings out loud in between the things that are happening, as if they're in a reality TV show or something. But mm-hmm. they're not. And in the same way that found footage, it just, I think in the kind of 10 years following Blair Witch became this, uh, this is a thing that we're using and yeah, there's music well, and there are edits and there's no reason why it should be found it? footage. Yeah, it becomes purely stylistic rather than hmm. conceptual. But I didn't think it was that here. And there was a couple of moments that made me think specifically someone had edited that together afterwards. There was a couple of moments where it seemed like it was protecting the dignity of Steve. So early on, he's talking about like how who's like, um, they kind of cut around the marijuana references. So like Steve's <laughs> like, someone says to Steve's like, oh, when they're walking out to the cave, oh, you know, going to get high or something. And he's like, oh man, I put the camera down. I can't talk about this still camera. It's like, yeah, but I am really, and it cuts away just before he says hi. <laughs> Um, <laughs> as if like you wouldn't want to like besmirch this dead guy who he, wanted to be a politician. He did not inhale. Yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. That I thought that was uh, exactly what they were doing. So, do you think that this was 
it's meant to be presented like Matt had put it all back together afterwards. I again, I think the tag scene at the end makes it Matt like Matt assembling his origin story. Yeah, I just, I just, yeah. I, I kind of couldn't care less. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel. I couldn't care less <laughs> why it's constructed by whom, and if it, and if it is constructed by Matt. I, I maybe care even less than not knowing because he's like <laughs> blandy face, bland face. And so this movie, Josh Trank made this movie for $12 million. That's insane. And, wow. you know, it kind of made 10 times that. So, I mean, that wow. is, I think that's flat out impressive that this yeah. movie cost $12 million. And they obviously spent the money in kind of all the right places. <laughs> it never to me looked like a cheap movie. And like I say, I think found footage helps them get around that a little bit. But there are also some like genuinely impressive shots. The stuff of them flying is all like it's better than Seven to Superman or whatever. Like, mm. and that was widely beloved by everyone. It feels real in a kind of like visceral way. And like I say, when you, I can kind of imagine how the powers are working. And I again think that's something that the found footage brings to it and that it feels just right at your fingertip. And I said it at the very beginning, my opinion hasn't changed, although it's, it's you know, flex around slightly, but what they were trying to go with, with the found footage stuff in Chronicle um, is it's unnecessary. Um, and by taking that route, you, you, you throw away a bunch of, of other options that you can take. Well, uh, let's use that to go back to one of, the, one of the things we were discussing right at the very beginning, which was that this is a superhero, a supervillain origin story. And something that this reminded me of, the Andrew Arc really brought up movies like Carrie, and in a real-world sense, kind of reminded me of you know, Andrew seemed like the kind of kid who would be responsible, you know, for a high school massacre. <laughs> you know, kind of, we need to talk about Kevin, mm. Columbine kind of kid. And I think that arc is interesting. And I think it does, I think it is interesting to look at that character, almost if you forget the superpowers here for a minute, of a character that you kind of want to like and you kind of want to understand and you kind of want to at least pity. But there is something slightly beyond the normal nerdy trodden down kid that makes him twist in the way that he does. And so, yeah, you want to feel sorry for him because of his dying mother and his, you know, abusive father. But the moment where you see who Andrew really is is when he knocks that car off of the road. Mm. And afterwards, he needs it to be explained to him why what he did was wrong. And I think that's a really interesting character to put front and centre as your protagonist in a movie. Forgetting about all the all the superhero stuff and and all that kind of you know, all that kind of thing, that you've got a character who, as much as you want to pity and as much as you kind of want to think of him as the as the nice guy, as the nice but, you know, the nice but misunderstood guy, he's actually the opposite of that. And he's got that thing inside him that will always be there. That's that little extra thing that kind of pushes them towards that, that end point. And that's, I think that's the one real great driving force behind most of this movie is what is it about Andrew hmm. that, convinces him that he is the apex predator what is it that pushes him to decide that everyone else are bugs that need to be squashed and <laughs> or, or to have get their legs everyone to watch him there's that I, I do love those you get a couple of them throughout the film those those small shots where andrew is just kind of hovering the camera like around his he's lying on his bed and he's sort of hovering yes. the camera over him and yeah and i think i feel i felt like i was trying to sort of look into his eyes and ask that question that you just asked, like, you know, what is going on in there? And Dane DeHaan has these quite, you know, these sort of hooded brows and, you know, his eyes are, quite, I think, quite hidden. 
Um, and it, it, that, that's that long answer, fringe as well, yeah. yeah. That answer felt out of reach, and that that was interesting. You, you're like, why, you know, what's what has dr- driven you to this? And I think just like in we need to talk about Kevin, you know, Tilda Swinton's character is like that. That whole film is about the the, the unknowable in, in a lot of ways, and I, I, I is, felt is that there as some well. element element in this person to begin with, right? Like. Or, you know, or can these or can these questions even be answered? You know, and I, I, I mm. that tends to be the, you know, when when you encounter fiction about uh, or nonfiction even about high school massacres. I, I just read that an article about Anders Bering Breivik, that whole stuff. The, like mm. the the answer is always that there aren't answers. You know that this this stuff is, uh, you know, has no answers, easy or otherwise. Um, I feel like if this movie wasn't about a kid with superpowers rather than ending in that big fight in Seattle, Andrew would have ended up at his school. Mm. Do, you, do, do, you know, do you know what I'm saying there? Mm, like, yeah. I feel like if he didn't have superpowers, there wouldn't be... Like, his big humiliation comes kind of because even though this guy who has tried to do nothing but nice things to him is kind of laughing when something bad happens... He he like blames him and puts him in his crosshairs for this humiliating event that's happened, and it's it's really that that pushes him over the edge because it's kind of in the in the next scene we see him pulling the spider's legs mm. off, and that's a really yeah. disturbing yeah. scene, and we see him delivering the apex predator speech after Steve dies, and I think that's a really interesting kind of. 15, 20 minutes of the movie mm. where you're really focused in on Andrew and you've kind of seen that he's snapped and you know at that point where it's heading towards. And that's why it's so frustrating that we have to go away with Matt as if the movie has to have some kind of hero. And so maybe ultimately what Chronicle lacks is a stronger hero. And maybe Matt isn't enough of a hero to make Chronicle really work. But you know who probably is would have been a better hero was, was, was Steve. You know, already yes. actually, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the yeah. scenes between the two of them actually really crackle because there seems to, there seems to be more uh, a more interesting mm. conflict, and and he's a much more interesting, charismatic actor than Matt. So maybe if you switch that film out and have, you know, because I guess they Steve survive. I guess they wanted to go with the the familial thing. The, you know, that it's his cousin. Yes, I, I get yeah. that, but that's the only reason I yeah. can think why Matt yeah, stays like, alive well, and Steve I doesn't. Think one of the best scenes in the film is the the like final confrontation between uh steve and andrew yeah where he's like he's saying like why did you come here and he's like i you know you needed help i had to come and help you Hmm. yeah or even just the even just steve and andrew in the car talking about their dads and the the relationships they have with their parents yeah like or yeah that or or steve helping him prepare for the talent show (laughs) trying to get him a girl matt always seems kind of distant even though he's got that family link and I think you could you could have done interesting stuff with well again I've already spoken about how Steve and the politician thing and the power thing there's there's just more ideas mm. than with Matt but also you know you, um, Steve and Andrew seem more seem more different you know because the the Matt character is also a bit of a bit of an outsider seems like he's a bit of a loner whereas with Steve you have like the most popular guy in school and then with Andrew the seems like the least popular guy in school and yet they become yeah. their friends you know from the, from this random reason that happens but deep down they're very different to each other and seems like you could have just brought out more of both characters if they were in opposition in that final scene you know that final fight at the end but mm. uh, alas that is not the film that we got <laughs> so i mean it's still I don't know whether it will eventually materialise or not, but Fox have been working for a long time on a Chronicle sequel without Josh Trank or Max Landis. 
Now, do you think there's enough in the core idea here that you could make a good sequel, or is it doomed to fail? I tell you what, I, I, I really did... wanted to see. Like, I was begging for them to return to the source of the powers yes. and yeah, explore yeah. that idea more. I kind of, I'm kind of glad that this movie didn't, but I could fully imagine if you do a sequel, that's what you do. I'm not sure. I just want to see three kids get powers again and see what they do with them. I think if you have to do a sequel to Chronicle, you go back to that source. If I did a sequel to Chronicle, it would probably be someone finding the source and then maybe everyone getting superpowers <laughs> and it being a sort of what you know what happens if you can choose to become a superhero essentially i love that scene in the cave i think the scene in the cave was really fantastically edited together and the doing the freaky stuff with the camera and the kind of drips of sweat on steve's head floating towards the crystals and the weird noises i thought it was a really effective scene and yeah. the fact that we just pick up three weeks afterwards with them kind of having <laughs> again learned their powers like that was one of the more interesting uh yeah. things it did with fan footage was to have such a giant chunk of it missing it was like everything yeah. before that gap and i guess he bit. loses his camera down there doesn't he so someone has to have gone back down there to find his camera to find that footage stop, stop asking, stop asking these questions break. These are dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares. I mean, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. But it does bug me. <laughs> I think. But have any of you guys read Max Landis's Chronicle Two idea? Because he's got. I, I think I remember skimming it at one point. He has got like a treatment, or maybe even a full script for Chronicle Two, and it's like it's nuts. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I read. Um, I read his proposed origin of the like crystalline thing. Oh, was and that? And that was what he wanted to do. Absolutely mental. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. We will find a link to that and put that on the podcast post because I certainly want to read that as well. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to the end of our Chronicle chat, guys. Um, now, this is going to be interesting. Um, Reese, you're a comic book reader as well as James. So um, you are both going to give me comic book recommendations based on Chronicle. What are you going to be recommending me this week? <sighs> okay. Uh, what I've done, I've been a little cheeky in that because uh, I'm a guest... Uh, on the show, I'm not, you know, not going to be every week. Um, I've sort of gone for it. Definitely has its ties to Chronicle, but also it, I just think it's a terrific comic from my favourite comic book writer, and that would be, uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, a bit of a cheat, but hey, that would be Grant Morrison. Um, and James, any ideas what I might say next? Yeah, I've realised now. You do? Okay, so this is a comic called Marvel Boy. It's, uh, I think it's a six-issue okay. miniseries from from 2000. It has Grant Morrison on. The script, obviously, and then a guy called J.G. Jones on the art. Uh, really, really terrific artist. Kind of in the Brian Hitch, Mo sort of hyper-detailed, but still cartoony, big widescreen action. Anyway, it, it follows a, um, a Cree, an, an alien, basically, that lands, uh, lands on the planet yeah. Earth um, and has these crazy superpowers. And he's been sent there uh, with the mission to destroy the human race basically. Um, and then the six issues kind of follow him sort of trying to do that, coming up against some resistance, obviously. Uh, and so I, I, the stuff I took from Chronicle was that there's lots of fun stuff in the first couple of issues of him discovering his powers. Uh, and it's, it's certainly what much more, um, comic booky than anything in Chronicle. Uh, but, um, I, I know that Grant Morrison has said that there's some parallels to Spider-Man to, you know, to kind of, if you were doing a, a Spider-Man type idea, but in the year 2000, um, it feels, feels 
really current and, and sort of tapped into to uh, the modern day, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will. And also from the Chronicles stuff, the sort of, the, you know, the villain side of things, the Marvel boy and Nova, that's the character's name. He's, he's not, you know, the miniseries ends with, with, it's almost a flip, in fact, of Chronicle, where the sort of series starts with him having all the, all the necessary motivations to be a villain. Um, and and ends okay. you know not to be too spoiled a bit with with him kind of walking away from that a bit so a bit of a flip on the chronicle idea excellent so it's six issue miniseries Marvel Boy brilliant James what have you got for me okay I have done my best to not mention this at all throughout the entire podcast this film is so like I I can only assume it's intentional that it lifts so much of its content from Akira, uh, which is a manga by Katsuhiro Otomo. Hmm. Obviously, Akira is a work of cyberpunk. I don't know if you've seen the film or not. I have uh, seen the film, yeah. I'm okay. Actually, I'm surprised that I didn't make that link. <laughs> I, went, I went to carry instead. What are you going to do? Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, aside from the fact that Akira is a cyberpunk uh, manga, like, the things, like... I mean, specifically, the talk of Apex Predators, Mm. like, is direct from Akira. The idea of the sort of disaffected teen getting telekinesis powers, uh, car crushing, you know, flipping police around. It's kind of... And it, yeah, the the um the links and the nosebleeds and stuff. It's all you know. I just I can't see how they got away with making a film that influenced by Akira, <laughs> without the people going who own the rights going like, hang on a second. Again, it's a bit like how the Matrix film like lifts entire action sequences and plot elements from Ghost in the Shell. Uh, but doesn't really acknowledge that in any way. It's just I haven't checked. I can't believe any of this was done without knowledge of Akira. And so what? So what is the actual recommendation? Because you're not going to recommend me all of Akira well, because that t- is epic. Yeah, that's the tough thing. Like I don't know if I should necessarily recommend that you read it because I can't remember how many volumes it is. It's like it's like five or six phone books basically yeah um so you don't necessarily have to read it for the podcast but i just wanted to highlight (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to highlight the similarities like i think if you like chronicle and you want to read a comic you just you can't go anywhere other than akira i think you can go in one other place and that's my recommendation (laughs) (laughs) that's i just i would say the other thing i would say is if you don't if you've got space uh, read a different volume of Daredevil like read the next volume of Daredevil consider that your <laughs> license to carry on with it that was the worst rec- I mean I've listened to every episode James that was the worst recommendation you've given I'm afraid that, did, that didn't make any sense <laughs> read some more Daredevil <laughs> okay uh, well let's move on now to our final section which is the pitch um, and so Reese, again you're going to be batting for Seb this week um, and this goes back to the Wicked and the Divine, which we talked about in the news segment. So if you could take any indie comic and adapt it for the screen, what would it be and why? And I think, James, I'll put you up first this time. Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. It's a sort of 80s uh, black and white comic, which is set in a world where dinosaurs have come back to life and uh, they coexist with humans in a sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland I'm selling this quite badly. <laughs> Basically, it's kind of Jurassic Park meets Mad Max. And 
I just think the visual, like it was previously adapted as a cartoon and computer game called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. And that pretty much sums it up. It's like people driving around in cars, but with trained dinosaurs. Okay. Reese, what indie comic would you like to take and adapt for the screen? Well, uh, I just want to do a, a, t- a quick plug for Why the Last Man, because that's the obvious choice. That's the choice that uh, we, we just must get at some point in the future. It must happen. Uh, it, it would make a perfect show, but that's not going to be my actual answer. I'm going to go with a, a Vertigo comic from 2010. It was only a 10-issue uh, miniseries, but I think it could probably go for longer than that in a TV form. It's called Day Tripper. Um, terrific by these two uh, Brazilian artists, writer-artists called Fabio Moon and Gabriel Barr, actually they're brothers um, and imagine it's kind of a cross between Quantum Leap and Six Feet Under so every issue and I guess every episode it basically it, it, it describes the, um, the day leading up to the death of uh, the main character um, but then in the very next issue it's a different day in his life and it's a different death and it's non-linear it sort of jumps around him he's at different ages he's at different places in his life uh, each issue makes no obviously no uh, um, link to how he had died in the previous issues um, but it's a it's a story about death but also about life uh, there are lots of really really sort of beautiful ideas about family about legacy it's really elegiac a lot of the, the visuals are really fantastic and i think um it's not it's not it's not too it's not an overly fantastical uh setting and so it could be um really sort of easily swooped onto um the television and uh and it's great i think the main character and his supporting cast are really really strong and interesting and uh and yeah i think it's, it's terrific great well so i'm gonna put together my like put on my executive studio executive or network executive hat on right now and I'm going to say, okay, Mad Max performed okay at the box office, and we're going to have to wait and see how Jurassic World does. Um, so I kind of, I kind of want to put yours on the back burner, James, and see <laughs> see what the market dictates. Um, and I think I'm going to have to go for Reese's as yes. well because um, James, as you said, you just you weren't really selling it. <laughs> no, I mean, Quantum Leap makes six feet under, right? That's uh, put that on the post. What you're going to what yeah. you're going to end up with is like the next Awake or the event or something. You're going to have a really great high concept first episode, and then it's going to go to shit. <laughs> and I'm going to be there with a mid season replacement. Oh, about trains and dinosaurs. Yeah, jog on, mate. Jog on. Cadillacs. Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Trains. Sorry. Come on. Let me like you're going to get the Cadillac license, James. Come on. <laughs> James, could you walking. make yours fan footage? Uh, no. I can make mine. I can make mine fan footage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Reese will sell out for a quick buck. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. <laughs> cost. I'll cost anybody. Judy Dench can be the guy. Whatever. She's a star. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Reese, uh, you're the winner of the pitch this week. Um, so that's, that, that's another one to add to um, to Seb's side of the column, and that's going to bring us to the end of this week's podcast. But uh, Reese, before you go, apart from your cinema that you work in, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, I just like to plug the website for the cinema, which is olympiccinema.co.uk. It, it really <laughs> is great. It's a ten minute bus ride from Hammersmith. A lot, it's sort of a little bit hidden away, but it's it's really fantastic and you should go if you live in London and you like movies but uh, I'm also on Twitter I'm at Reese. that's R-H-Y-S I don't really tweet so uh, it's um, it's a wasted <laughs> follow to be honest but, uh, but go for it I, could, I can do getting those numbers up 
and that's me really and uh, yeah amazing so uh, listeners if you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe on iTunes Stitcher Player FM or your podcast app of choice and if you already subscribed then please leave us a rating or review and we will read uh, those names out we'll give you a shout out on the next full episode of the show you can find us on Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast and send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com you can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye. I know you play mysterious and aloof just to avoid getting hurt. And I know you have your reasons for not wanting to talk about your past. But I want you to know that I don't care about any of that stuff. Because I'm in Lesbians with you. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.